Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get over to David Katz right now. He is the president and CIO at Matrix Asset Advisors, a firm that he uh, co-founded as well. Um, David, I wonder what you think about the inflation number. Obviously, that's probably our top headline today. 6.8% year over year is a big, hefty number. But as I can't remember if it was Critty or Shanali, one of them was telling us earlier, the month-over-month number was a little softer uh, than maybe we expected. And also, bad news looks like it's pretty good news for this market. Well, right now, all the news is, is good for this market. Uh, it's looking through a lot of things. You know, today's action is a little bit surprising in terms of yields going lower and stocks going higher on the worst inflation numbers since 1982. Um, we think what's happening is the market is looking through the current higher inflation. It was not uh, worse than expectations, so people don't think it's going to cause the Fed to change course. And from our perspective, while we do worry a lot about inflation, we think that it is going to calm down uh, by next spring or summer under the 3.5% level. So we don't think it derails the economy, uh, and interest rates will still stay relatively low. So that's an okay environment for stocks. It's interesting that you say that any news is good news, because I'm wondering if you could speak to the fear and the caution that still underpins this market. Well, you know, the, the market has been more volatile since September. You've had two 5% corrections, and that's more normal, and we think that's going to continue for some time. But at the moment, the market is looking through the negatives and focusing on the positives. And, and the positives are, are pretty good. The economy's in very good shape. Uh, businesses are doing very well. Corporate earnings are coming in very nicely. And we think a, a significant driver of the stock market is there's this enormous liquidity out there. There's just so much cash floating around. And as people throw that into stocks, that's just driving prices higher. So the key here from an investment perspective is not to chase the rallies. You know, we uh, suggest putting money to work when you have these sell-offs like you had in September or in the last month, uh, rather than trying to throw money in after things have risen. Is do valuations not concern you here because we seem to be at a level where any little thing, for example, um, I think it was last Monday, we got a headline saying that a, an Omicron case had been found in California after we all knew that Omicron was out in the U.S. So it wasn't a surprise, and yet the market sold off. Right. The market's going to be pretty volatile. It's taking its cues, whether it's COVID news uh, or Fed news or, or government news, uh, either the market loves things or it hates things. Uh, so the key to be an investor is just look beyond the day-to-day -day fluctuations. In terms of valuation, we think the overall market is modestly overvalued. Uh, we think many growth stocks are very significantly overvalued, and that's the area that we worry a lot about. The flip side is we think there are a lot of places that you can buy now and you should do well over the next 12 months. There are a lot of areas uh, like media, telecom, healthcare that have not done a lot. The businesses are doing well. Stocks are at 12, 13 times earnings. We think that's going to be the next place to make good money and do it in a lower risk way. 
You know, it's interesting. I was with Scott Minard yesterday, who is the CIO of Guggenheim, big bond investor, and he was saying that— You don't need to brag about it. We know who Scott Minard is. <laughs> well, you know, one interesting thing he said to me, and we'll hear more about this next week, is that he thinks that the market is telling us that they're afraid of a policy mistake when it comes to the Federal Reserve. What do you think that really means, David? And do you agree with that? Well, I, I think the market— while it might be afraid, it's truly not acting that way in terms of bonds or stocks. So I, I think the Fed has actually done a very good job. Inflation is much hotter than they had originally anticipated. We think a lot of that is coming from the labor market and from the logistics problems caused by COVID. And we think both of those are going to come under better control uh, in the next six months or so. So, you know, we're, we're in the camp where we really like what the Fed is doing. Yes, they probably are a little bit late to starting to taper, um, but we don't think it's going to derail the economy. And, and we think they should be given a lot of credit for navigating a really difficult economic uh, environment over the last two years. Almost seemed like they had to be, right? Powell was super dovish until he was reconfirmed. And then, and then he and then he was like, actually, you know what? I don't think it's going to be transitory. <laughs> um, all right. So what do you like here, David? I mean, if uh, when you wake up in the morning, what do you get pumped about? Or if your if your best friend asks you at the bar, um, you know, where he should be investing, what do you tell him? So we like, as I mentioned, the the media, telecom, healthcare, financials. Uh, probably our favorite. Uh, Two stocks right now would be Comcast, which uh, was off uh, this week on what we think was a misunderstanding of the company communications. Uh, it's going to have very nice earnings in the next year. It sells at 13 and a half times earnings. Great long-term business. So we like that here. Viacom uh, is doing all of the right things. They are going to become a streaming force. The stock sells at under nine times earnings. The CEO and the chairwoman just bought a great deal of stock, yet it sells at year lows uh, at a great price. Uh, 3% yield. So things like that are pretty interesting. On the banking side, we like M&T Bank uh, and U.S. Bancorp. Uh, in the healthcare side, we like Amgen. And Zimmer, which makes knee and hip replacements, has done pretty poorly of late. Uh, we think as COVID normalizes, as the world gets back to normal, that stock easily is a $160 company. You're buying it at 125 today. All those companies that I mentioned are selling well below market multiples, so you're not paying 20 and 25 times earnings for these good businesses. All right, David, um, great to get some time with you. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks very much. David Katz is the president and chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors, talking to us about the markets, uh, the Fed, and inflation. Jeffrey Cleveland coming up now. We promised that we would talk about inflation again. And he is the director and chief economist for Peyton and Rigel. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. What is your expectation for next week, given this elevated inflation number we have? I know it is in line with estimates, but it is still high. Yeah, it's a tricky, it's a very tricky situation for the FOMC, I think. Very high inflation, uh, higher than you know policymakers expected for the year. Uh, also, I have to issue a mea culpa, much higher than I had anticipated for the year. So we were also wrong in our forecast. Um, but in recent months, it looks like the market it, you know expected higher inflation was set up for that. So perhaps that's why you see the rally today. The task for the Fed, though, which is your question, they you know they've delivered very explicit guidance on when they might lift off. Right? They say maximum employment. 
so um, the, with inflation very, very high, question is, are they going to relax or somehow alter how they define maximum employment to say that you know we are much closer to it with you know quit rates very high, with job openings very high, with the unemployment rate at 4.2%? Is that close enough to open the door for liftoff? Um, that's that's the thing that they have to wrestle with. It's the, the key thing in my mind. Um, How, I still think we're not at full employment or close to maximum employment, in my view. But given but, where inflation is, maybe they adjust that their their take. I mean, if we're not at maximum employment, how is it that we saw fewer jobless claims um, this week than any time since Richard Nixon was president? Yeah, it's, I think it all depends on how you define maximum, right? Which they they did not give us an explicit, uh, you know, numerical definition. But for me, you know, I look at I look at that, and it's great. We have very few layoffs, so that's good news. We have a labor force participation rate, though, Matt. That's sixty one point eight. We were on labor force participation over sixty three um, pre COVID. So yeah, some of those people probably retired early, but not. All of those folks, you know, when you look at that chart of labor force, what what is your view, Jeffrey, of the Great Resignation? Um, I've we've written a story about it. Uh, every major media outlet has has tried to figure out what's going on here. So many people are telling me, you know what, the kids are just uh, fed up. They're just not getting paid enough to keep up with rising prices, and they just are quitting. Is that how you yeah. see it too? Well, where do you see a lot of the quits in, in the data? Okay, it's it tends to be in some of the lower wage industries, so things like uh, food service, bars and restaurants. So that could be just a situation where there are some better wage options that um, you know different employers and people are making the jump. It could be something like that. We looked yesterday, you know, at the job openings data. Where are all the job openings available that, that people can jump to? The biggest increase in job openings uh, since COVID began, you've got, you know, the leisure and hospitality, uh, which is, of course, where we saw the most job losses. So if we are coming out of this pandemic, it's not that unusual to see those job openings rise. But then also, Matt, uh, manufacturing, trade, warehouse, all those areas that are tied in very closely to meeting the demand for goods uh, that we've seen. We've seen this huge surge from consumers in the last 18 months in demand for goods. And there's, mm -hmm. there's been a lot of job openings and hiring in that area. To me, though, that's really unique to the pandemic. Once consumer spending normalizes, people go back to spending more on services, less on goods. I mean, how many, uh, how many home gyms do you need, Matt? The mm -hmm. spending patterns will right. change, and then maybe demand in those industries will change. Job openings will come down. So we, it could be some noise in, in the quits data and also in the job openings. Data. Right. I, I'm really curious here about labor as well, because we did see that news coming out of Starbucks and the union vote. And I'm wondering if we're going to see more like this. Are we going to see more unionization, more strikes, more people that are asking for more um, as this labor market changes? Yeah, I mean, one thing we've learned over the years is when, when the labor market gets hotter, right, when you get the unemployment rate falls below five, down to four, we think the unemployment rate will get to 3.5 next year. That's great for labor. That is usually great for the broad swath of labor market. Um, so I, it does tip the scales, if you will, more in, in favor of labor over, over capital, which, uh, which as an employee, I won't complain about. It just dawned on me that, I mean, mindset matters, right? You're the kind of person, Jeffrey, who 
doesn't quit. You don't ever give up, as is obvious by the fact that you swam across the English Channel, the Catalina Channel, and around the island of Manhattan. But I wonder if there's a generation of kids now that has just said, I, I can't. I, I have had enough. I can't keep up. Yeah, or you know, there, there are other options available. So I think one interesting data series worth taking a look at you know, of late is um, new business applications. So one of the predictions, I think, pre-COVID was that you know, capital wouldn't be available and then businesses you know, would really suffer. But we've seen sort of a flourishing in, in new business applications through the COVID period and even after here. So uh, it could be that the entrepreneurial spirit in the U.S. is, is alive and well. And instead of working for uh, the, uh, the firm, you know, people can branch out and start their own operations. So that, also- that, that could be a positive spin on this whole development. It's not necessarily yeah. a, a bad thing. Also a great point. Jeffrey, I love having you on. Thanks so much for joining us. Jeff Cleveland there is the director and chief economist over at Payton and Regal. Next up, we have Marianne Miller. She's the vice president of client experience, vice president over at Prove, and she has the latest on cybersecurity amid this holiday shopping season, as we know that a lot of it is being done online. Marianne, thank you so much for joining us. What are some of the issues that you're most concerned about this season? Yes, great. Um, Thank you, and it's great to be here with you and your audience today. Um, This holiday season is um, proving to be challenging for retailers, and I predict, and I'm going to go on on record here on your show, it's going to be the toughest year in history for retail loss prevention. Um, The pandemic really moved consumers to online retailers. We see continued other factors that are kind of continuing this trend this year as this year closes, and we're moving into 2022. Um, Many of the factors that contributed to fraud during the pandemic, importantly, the challenge of um, digital identity proofing are affecting retailers as well. But we also have some top headline fraud issues as well. And uh, I'll, yeah. I I actually just got an email. I'm trying to sell a car here, and it's got an email from a a captain in the U.S. military, he's serving in Syria right now. He and his buddies just found $6.2 million uh, that they decided to keep instead. And now they're going to put it in a Red Cross box and send it to me. In return, I get 15%. And all I need to do is send them a copy of my ID and my bank account details. It seems like a great deal. I don't want to miss out on it. Is there anything I should be concerned about? Yes, there's definitely things you should be concerned about. And that <laughs> definitely sounds like a scam. And we know I, I got to tell um, you, Marion, I've had two, <laughs> two people saying that they found millions of dollars in boxes and wanted to send them to me by a Red Cross. This is the new like African prince scam, I think. Right. Well, you know, when it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. And, and, and you know, if you look at some of the challenges that you see out there for consumers as well as retailers um, and, you know, and a couple of things that we really want to focus on is, um, you know, the supply chain shortages are going to make fraud more prevalent. So fraudsters like to take advantage of, you know, panicked online buying and setting up fake phishing sites to collect customers' personal information and credit and debit card information. So just like you're experiencing, Matt, there's just these, you know, constant phishing attacks and these attacks of scamming are, are, are bringing consumers into the, into the mix. And second, um, the retailers have always had an element of shoplifting increase during the holiday. But recently, you know, the highly publicized sharp spikes in organized retail theft is putting stress on businesses. So 
This is increasing the cost of physical security, insurance, and, and moves more shopping online. And as retailers, um, you know, move more things off the shelves in, in certain locations and move things online, then that's when we start to see the scams like you're starting to see and experience. So in some cities, um, law enforcement task force have been set up just to set up and curtailing these activities. You know, Marianne, let's look a couple years into the future here real quick, because I'm wondering if crypto continues to take off, does that make cybercrime easier or harder? Because in theory, yeah, I mean, you know, how, mm. how does that really end up playing out? Well, you know, anytime that there's something and I, you know, in the fraud community, we always look at anytime there's something new um, and, and fraudsters love, uh, bad actors love a new product or something new. And they're definitely taking advantage of the crypto environment and, you know, the, 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 the crypto exchanges. And we know that um, there's a lot of focus on getting new signals uh, in those uh, environments to make them safer, um, like device intelligence and phone identity signals, biometrics, machine learning, all of that's really important, you know, mm-hmm. to make, you know, an environment where it's, you know, better loss controls. Marianne, thank you so much for joining us on this. It's going to be a scary holiday season in some regards. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. We're running on a financial system that's running on old technology. We're seeing house prices reach fresh record highs. What unfolds in midterms, we will no doubt see again in the next presidential election. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's get to our Big Take story of the day. Paul and I love these stories, but I'm sure Shanali does as well. They are deeply reported long reads that we uh, have for you on the Bloomberg Terminal, but are also available um, often in Bloomberg Business Week. Today, Cam Simpson joins us. He wrote a story about, well, the title is The ESG Mirage, and it's about MSCI. Cam, you say it's a bland Wall Street company, but I have always uh, loved MSCI because they help me um, so easily sort through a number of different verticals in the market. Of course, I've been reporting on markets for 20 years, so I've been using it for a long time. What's the link between this company and ESG? Yeah, that, that's right. Thanks. It's, you know, <clears throat> but this is kind of like a back office function on Wall Street that nobody, it's not like a really terribly sexy stock. That's what we send then the the CEO of the company, he rebranded it around their ESG business. They are by far the dominant uh, ratings provided for ESG investing, which, as you know, has become a multi-trillion dollar <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, business and the, and the fastest growing segment of the global financial services industry in just the past few years. And these guys, I mean, in terms of retail funds that people are able to invest in, their ratings probably are underneath at least 60% of the money in retail funds. I mean, it's not even close between them and their next competitor. They they just completely dominate the space. So he rebranded the company in 2019, the beginning of 2019, when he saw this taking off under you know a new motto, which was either better investments for a better world or better portfolios for a better world, really trying to hammer on <clears throat> this idea that Investing in ESG funds is going to help save the planet from climate change. And, you know, this really took off in 2020 when, you know, uh, it was marketed around the social justice 
uh, movement and that was happening in America on the streets and also the pandemic and you know dire warnings about the climate crisis mm-hmm. and so uh, they're they're really MSCI is at the foundation of of this whole boom in 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 sustainable funds in America but, through and globally through but, through their ratings. Cam, it's so interesting and you know fun fact. MSCI used to be a part of Morgan Stanley back in the day. They have gotten a lot of heat from fund managers for not doing more. What is the issue at play here between MSCI and its ESG push, or you know the the lack thereof in some resp- regards? Well, I think I think you know the issue is that that ESG is pretty much exactly the opposite of what Wall Street marketing has led people to believe that it is, right? So ESG ratings, MSCI's ESG ratings in particular, they're all different. They're all different brands of magic, and they're not regulated. And they all every ESG rater produces completely different results, unlike a credit rating. ESG, you know, MSCI uses the credit rating standards, so AAA, triple B, B junk, the stuff that Wall Street knows and recognizes are the only ones who do that. And they get an aura of credibility from that um, that, that nobody else gets. But the lens that they're looking at is not like what's going to make a better world. The lens that they're looking at specifically is what matters to the bottom line. It's not the impact of the company on the world. It's the impact of the world on the company. So when you look at climate change, you could be a massive producer of greenhouse gases. And unless you're in a business that's going to be regulated for greenhouse gases, which is pretty much just the utility industry, these won't even really impact your, your bottom line in any, in any near kind of way. And so they're not even considered in your rating. McDonald's had greenhouse gas emissions equal to Portugal or Hungary. And it's supply chain, which is where most of that comes from, because it's one of the biggest beef purchasers in the world. And it, it weighs 0%. In, in MSCI's ESG rating of them. They got an ESG rating, they got an ESG upgrade when their emissions were going up significantly and and, and MSCI recalculated its environment score to remove emissions completely. So what we did was we went through like all the upgrades in the S&P 500 during this period of record growth for sustainable investing and we looked at what was actually underneath the upgrades. We built a bespoke database to really get under the hood of these ratings and see what they were we were pretty surprised. I mean, we didn't know this was a pure exercise. Like, where is it actually coming from? And what does it actually mean? So to discover that it was kind of the opposite of what was being, what investors are being pitched on, what the world is being pitched on, uh, was really, really, really surprising to us. And hopefully we, we were able to show that in a way that is meaningful for people. And yeah, the interesting thing, Cam, is when we talk to ESG investors, they say uh, you can't separate ESG from the bottom line because things like, um, you know, the diversity that you have in terms of management affect uh, how well you do financially. If you have a more diverse board, you're likely to sell your stuff to a more diverse and, and a bigger group of people. Mm-hmm. I guess what you're saying is that's not always the, uh, the case that ESG leads to a better bottom line. No, I think that the problem is the problem is the way that ESG is marketed, especially to ordinary retail investors. The idea that you're doing something to make the world better, right? Like climate change, I think, especially right. for millennials who have really been driving this boom, you know, that's what matters to them right. the most. And the biggest mm-hmm. chasm between the marketing of ESG and what the ratings actually represent Cam. is on climate change. 
we have to leave it there, but we'll definitely be following this more. Thank you so much. That's Cam Simpson. He was part of the big take of the day regarding the ESG Mirage. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.